Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. This is episode 32. Today, we sit down with Joe Kasabian. Joe is a U.S. Army veteran of the war in Afghanistan, author of the book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and host of the history podcast, Lions Led by Donkeys. We discuss Afghanistan, Joe's journey to becoming a socialist, a bit about the horrifying legal rule known as the Good Soldier Doctrine, and the dubious history of Prager University. Rifle upon my shoulder And a rucksack on my back Bullets, shells and shrapnel And a hellhound on my track When I made it to my home place I found triumph Shining city stood a fortress on a hill. Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. For those new to the show, Danny and I are two progressive veterans who take the military and veteran stories of the day and add some much needed context. All right, uh, Joe Kasabian, welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, dude, we're super glad to have you here. Um, As I mentioned before we got started, I've been making my way through your book. I think it's a a really great um, down and dirty on on the basics of soldiers being deployed and what they actually do versus what we tell the media and other people what they actually do. Um, So... um, if you mind real quick, will you give everybody just a, a down and dirty on your time in the military? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I enlisted when I was 17 years old back in 2005. Um, I joined as a cannon crew member originally and then changed to become a tank crewman when because I got like lied to and said, oh, there's no spots left in armor. You have to pick something else. Yeah, right. <laughs> And uh, the the MEPS guy in Detroit was like, no, no, you can totally be a tanker if you want. So I switched. Um, didn't do a whole lot uh, with my military career until about 2008 uh, when I deployed for the first time into Northeast Afghanistan. Um, not entirely sure why that never got turned into a book since I turned my second one into a book. But uh, in 2011, sorry, yeah, 2011, when uh, I got back, I deployed again to Kandahar for another year. Um, it's a unit that will not be named. That's something I promised my company commander. Uh, <laughs> That's awful uh, nice of you. Well, I was a little worried uh, originally uh, going into it because there's quite a few people in the book who are absolutely lifers, and um, I've come to the I've come to accept that what they did while we were deployed um, was not necessarily the best thing. But they're not a bad person as as much as I'm not a bad person, and. Um, didn't really want to tank their careers. Um, a few people since then have come out and said, yep, that was totally me. That's fine. Cause they're civilians now. Um, and I'll let people do that as, as well as they want to, whenever it comes up, I'm never going to stop them from outing themselves. Um, one of them came on my show recently. Um, but I decided to protect, uh, themselves. 
from themselves effectively. Uh, but during my time in Afghanistan, the second tour in Kandahar, you know, the whole um, deployment to me felt off. Um, nobody really seemed to have a control over anything. And, um, and to include myself, because I was a junior team leader at the time, and uh, I learned really quickly that uh, when you don't control soldiers, soldiers kind of go absolutely wild. Hell and, yeah, uh, they will. Yeah. And you know, I should have known that because I was a soldier. Um, and that was really dumb of me to think that. But, you know, when, uh, when, when officers and just don't care, it, it becomes pretty obvious that it trickles downward and it just spun into a total madness. I, I think it was probably one of the most dysfunctional things I've ever been a part of in my life. That's, that would be a good description of my enlistment as well. It, uh, you, I, I feel like there's this blank space that we give people the benefit of the doubt before we join. And then I know for me that I continued that through my time in the army, but it slowly got lesser and lesser because I, I just couldn't excuse it anymore. You know, you could say, oh, well, that, it was that shitty soldier or, well, it was that shitty unit or, well, it was that shitty deployment. And at the end of the day, it's like that for everybody. There, it's all shitty. Um, it's all people being shoved into a human meat grinder and hoping it creates something that pleases our politicians. So, um, so Danny, uh, in his in- infinite wisdom, uh, since he couldn't be here today, dropped a couple questions for me. and. Since we're on Afghanistan, um, he wanted me to ask, was there ever a time when you were in country that you believed you guys were or thought you could make any kind of progress? Um, there, there's flashes, I think is the best way of putting it. Um, I learned pretty quickly in my first deployment to Afghanistan that uh I will never make some kind of institutional impact on the country or the infrastructure of Afghanistan in a positive way. Uh, but there's times where we really got a chance to help people who were hurting that we had nothing to do with. Um, there was a, I mean, when I was there in 2008, we got the chance to attempt to um, secure polling places so they could have the first elections. Um, didn't go great, but you know the the theory at first was it was going to go great. Um, as we know now, Karzai effectively stole the election. Uh, yeah. But you know, in two thousand, when I was there, in, uh, from two thousand eleven to twelve in the book, there was times where we felt like we could help people, um, maybe get people to a doctor, um, let our medic tend to them, um, because our you know. 19-year-old medic was the closest thing to a medical professional at Village has seen in quite some time. Yeah. But institutionally, absolutely not. Um, if, if anything, because our, our main mission was to train the Afghan National Police, or I think now they're called the Afghan Uniform Police, or they keep changing their name, hoping things will change. But, uh, you know, I, I knew from my past dealing with them, um, from my prior deployment, we weren't going to accomplish a whole lot. Um, and I thought we'd be able to be like that a Dutch boy plugging the hole in the wall from the river or whatever. So it doesn't come flooding through and the Taliban take everything over. Yeah. Um, but it seemed like we, we were moving backwards at a pace we couldn't even keep up with um, when it came to our actual mission. Um, but best case scenario, the, the most positive difference we could be was just not inflict ourselves on the, on the surrounding population of our fire base. And we failed at that too. Um, 
but every once in a while there was a kid who maybe we we helped see a doctor um we tried to build a a school and it melted so i mean i i I don't think i can think of anything majorly positive that we did no it's it's uh it's hard it's hard acknowledging that all that time all that effort didn't didn't change anything and especially in a in a sense of loss um it's hard to think about that it's hard to think you know even for me today you know i've been out since 2008 um thinking about the lives destroyed and lost and like you said we we tried to rename it didn't change anything we tried to a slightly different mission that was really the same mission and that didn't change anything and um just trying to find a really good way to distill that onto people to understand that that you know at least when they got finished building the pyramids they had the pyramids however many thousand people died to build it it was still that they there was still the achievement was still in front of them but for us we didn't accomplish anything not for the afghans and not for america either right and i think for veterans especially uh, it takes a lot of heavy introspection uh, i don't whatever that looks like for for everybody uh, it takes different forms to really accept that one of the most formative parts of your life because I mean, for how much I hate the army, you know, the almost a decade I spent in the army is the most formative part of my life. I was I joined when I was seventeen. I got on as an adult. You know, I, I grew up within the army, um, but it takes a lot of introspection to accept that the most formative part of your life was bad. And I think, um, especially your deployments, because I mean, if you're in the military and you deployed, that's probably the part you think about the most. And um, it, it takes a lot for you to be like, yeah, that part that, that sticks out from everywhere else and affects me every day of my life was fundamentally bad and flawed. That's a hard hill to climb. Yeah. BT, did you want to jump in, brother? Oh, um, it is interesting to have to, because I'm in the same boat. Uh, you know, I joined when I was 17 and I got out when I was like 28 or so. And I mean, it is your entire, it's your entire life. And then you do have to go through these stages of acceptance, you know, through the different stages of grief. And for me personally, it's been uh, probably not till these past three years that I realized, you know, the, the whole severity, because I think when we're in, you know, we're trying, we're trying to survive whatever that, whatever that looks like for, you know, whoever, but I mean, you know, our culture, we don't, we're not good people to ask about like winning and losing because we don't even take care. We don't even have the ability to take care of ourselves as opposed or, you know, trying to think of a bigger picture. We put so much into uh, that unit, that mission. And then you sit back and you look and you see that didn't really do anything positive. Can't, can't really feel good about, uh, contributions to the history book i mean that's just that's just weird did you ever think you were going to read about what you did in a book i mean let alone write write one obviously but just like oh i mean it's i never fathomed to be part of anything um historical in my life and i i still don't think i am i'm i'm like a blip on a map i'm the guy who deployed to vietnam in like 71 and nobody really cared about him um (laughs) You know, it's, you know, I think one of the, the, the crazier parts is like, I've been contacted by history teachers because they want to teach my book in class. And one, I think there's way too many stories about jerking off in that book to uh, be talked about in high school. Uh, and also like, 
I still don't take myself very seriously when it comes to being thought of as you know, a, a voice for veterans or, or about the war or anything. Because, uh, I mean, uh, that book was was lived through when I was a shitty 21-year-old. Um, and it's I'm 30 now. So it's I'm not the same person as I was. Like I definitely grew up throughout the the course of that book and through the 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 writing of it. Um, like I look back now, I'm like holy shit, this is awful. But I think uh, more now because I'm still pretty pretty tightly wound into the military community around me from the very nature of who I am. And uh, like I'm the co-host of my podcast is a sergeant in the army, uh, but he is almost a decade younger than me. Uh, <laughs> So it's really weird to have effect for them. I've lived through history because, you know, we've all deployed. Um, like I remember watching 9-11 happen on the TV. Um, I remember watching the U.S. Army invade uh, Afghanistan, Iraq on, on the news. Um, and then I went there. And uh, now that's such like this far flung idea to uh, the younger people now. It's kind of insane, even though we're still there. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, you, you talk about not taking yourself seriously, but just look at it from the other perspective. Who else, if not you? I mean, you come in with the important and hard look at reality as opposed to maybe some general Wesley Clark or someone who's just going to come in and, you know, spout the, the line of whatever the professional historians want to be said. And the stories, you know, that we all try to get out through our various means these are the stories that actually make a difference because if we just listen to the, the professional big wigs, we would never leave war. Yeah. And uh, that's, I completely agree. And I think that's one of the, the reasons why I, I guess my book has been popular is that I'm not, I, I have no reason to lie to you. Um, I'm, I'm not protecting any kind of legacy or, if anything, I treat myself worse than almost anybody else in the book. Um, well, every general or general or officer or political pundit, they always have some angle they're pushing. Um, or, you know, uh, a great example is you know, everybody thinks uh, the outgoing Secretary of Defense, Mattis, was, you know, his opinions meant a lot, but uh, because he's some fake philosopher monk type asshole everybody built him up to be uh or or any general from the last 40 years um what have they accomplished i mean that they've done nothing but propagate wars that have not only destroyed multiple countries across the planet um but they discount the multiple voices within their own military that are asking what the fuck are we doing and whenever you do say something uh if you're a veteran and you say like hey maybe we shouldn't be doing this uh the first thing they do is attack your service record uh yep. because uh, obviously you can't be a real soldier if, if you didn't like what you did exactly exactly the failing you know leadership failing to acknowledge any kind of adaptability on the part of the enemy when they change tactics and like can we you, you would mention that about seeing how they were laying, laying daisy chains um, when your guys were sweeping for them, that you could tell that these guys were learning from what we do. Same with replacing dead Taliban leaders. The next guy is his number two. All he has to do is step in line. How much work does it take us to replace a commander, deputy commander, whoever the, the, the fuck it has to be? 
Right. It's a complete, it's a completely unwinnable scenario that we find ourselves in. Um, you can't win fighting a reactionary war. And, and that's if, you know, we were fighting a war that's, that was worth fighting, whatever that looks like anymore. But yeah, you can't win a, a coin operation. They're just unwinnable. Um, I don't remember the last time in history that it successfully happened outside, maybe Northern Ireland, if you want to consider that a victory for the British. Um, but the the complete disconnect between the people running the war and the actual conditions on the ground are a generational in in distance they they still think that this plan of standing up the afghan national army and the afghan national police whatever the hell they're calling themselves now to be this federal force to force the taliban out when in red, there's more Taliban now in pretty much every province of Afghanistan than there ever has been, even when before we got there. And they've had 18 years to grow their ranks and see all the horrible things we've done. We've got a lot of really good recruiters out there, too. I mean, yeah, every single person walking down the street wearing a flag yep. on their shoulder. That dude who said he would never speak to another U.S. troop again, he's got some things to say. Yeah. And. It's like every time, um, like when I was there, it was when uh, Staff Sergeant Robert Bales massacred all those people in a village. Oh, um, God. And, and with, I think it was either a week before that or a week after that on uh, Bagram or Calf, I can't remember, uh, somebody burnt a box of Korans in the open burn pit. Like, uh. And obviously the Bales thing is unconscionable and I'm, I'm against the death penalty, but I wouldn't complain too much if I watched him swing from the gallows. Um, but like every time something like that happens, you undo whatever, whatever good we've ever done. Um, because I, I don't know if anybody that was ever over there ever picked this up, but they, but the people of Afghanistan have an incredibly long memory. Oh God, uh, yes. It doesn't matter that I'm in a different unit than Bales was. I'm an American soldier in Kandahar, 50 miles away from where he slaughtered a whole bunch of people. I might as well be him. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the, that's what we as veterans need to explain to people. You know, it's no different than if it happened here. Do you expect that these people would continue just putting up with this? So I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, Afghan economics for a minute. Um, I had read that story in your book about a soldier, one of, your, one of the guys that was helping train up your squad to be replaced, um, stole some ice cream from a local Afghan and uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So we were in a village um, doing right seat, left seat where we're taking over the battle space from them as they got ready to leave. And um, I was a young corporal at the time and I took most of the squads or most of my platoon's leadership out with them to kind of show us the battle space uh, as well as, kind of show what we'd be doing in the area, doing key leader engagements, um, talking to the population, stuff like that. And one of um, their soldiers effectively robbed an ice cream guy. Um, an ice cream guy came around and I, fuck yeah, I wanted ice cream. It was like 130 degrees or however hot it was. I was tired and I was hungry, but I had no Afghan uh, Afghanis on me. And I knew the conversion rate to a dollar to Afghani was huge but you know i only had like a 20 so i wasn't gonna give him a, a month's salary for some ice cream bars because i wanted a 20 dollar bill myself um so i asked uh somebody that if they had any afghanis and um a soldier from the other unit just fucking robbed the guy just walked over stuffed his hand in the little cart that he was pushing and took him and um it, it's that type and you know he thought it was the funniest thing on earth um 
and other people in his unit, it w- it might as well have been him doing any other mundane everyday activity. They didn't even react. Um, obviously, this is horrible for several reasons. Um, but other than the fact that this is an old man, easily in his 50s or 60s, pushing a hand push, uh, powered ice cream cart down the street in Kandahar, Afghanistan, in the middle of the fucking summer. Like this guy does not have money. Um, it's not like he's sitting on a surplus back home. There's a very good chance he actually took that ice cream out on a debt from somebody else from, from Kandahar city proper to bring it out to the village. And then he has to pay that guy back. And then whatever's left is, um, is what he brings home that day. Um, you know, it, it's the little things like that, that just, endear ourselves to being horrible for Afghanistan and the Afghan people. Um, and it's not exactly like there's a thriving job market in a half blown up village. You know, that was probably the only job he could get. Yeah. It was probably his, his work at McDonald's until I die. Yeah. Job. Um, no, and he had more than most. Yeah, no. And, 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 and (laughs) I don't, I don't know how to impart that on people. You know, I, I don't know that America has any people that even with the extreme poverty that we have here, that would fit into that idea of being that poor, that you're literally pushing your livelihood down the street. And if you don't sell, you don't eat. Yeah. I mean, that's, I th- I grew up pretty poor myself um, in Detroit, but then going to Afghanistan, I, I was really, I really got to see what true crushing poverty was for the first time in my life. And um, how much, I mean, granted it was bad. Um, it was very bad before we got there and it will be, it has been very bad while we've been there and it'll continue to be very bad while we leave. Um, history has shown that even the most powerful Afghan governments don't really control anything outside of Kabul. Um, all the infrastructure projects, all the schools, hospitals, the economic development doesn't really leave uh, the borders of the capital city. Um, so, you know, the, the poor farmers who were getting their shit robbed by those soldiers will be poor farmers getting their shit robbed by the Taliban um, whenever we leave. Um, it's a horrible, vicious process. So I wanted to ask you about um, a clip of your, uh, your PragerU episode that you had recently. Really enjoyed it, by the way. No, thank you. Um, so you had talked a bit about uh, Ty Cobb and, of course, how good amazing of a baseball player he was, but how yeah. much of a, of a viral racist he was as well. And uh, I've got a clip right here. I'm going to play. Give me one second to share my audio. Cause I know Justin's a huge baseball fan. So I get to piss him off at a personal level now. Hey, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so of course the only video they have um, on racism is baseball and how it doesn't exist. Uh, there's actually um a video defending Ty Cobb. Uh, now, Ty Cobb, I know a lot about uh, personally because I'm from Detroit. I'm a Detroit Tigers fan. Ty Cobb is a Detroit Tigers legend. Um, but Ty Cobb is also a well-known asshole of baseball history and a virulent racist. Um, the video points to... Uh, so the video disputes this. Uh, they point to accounts of his teammates who said, well, I never saw him be racist. <laughs> Uh, it should be noted that his teammates were all mostly Southern white dudes and they're all about one generation removed from fighting for the Confederacy. Uh, so take their opinions with a grain of salt. 
Um, yeah, and like I, I don't know if you played sports growing up, but when you're on a sports team, if a player is really good, a lot of times you're willing to either overlook or not exactly call attention to the fact that they're a fucking prick. But also, it's not surprising to me that a bunch of white people who are most likely racist did not call out someone else who was a lot more open with his racism. I mean, it's 2018 and that still happens. This is 1907. Yeah, you have baseball <laughs> play- you have baseball players now who have a well-documented social media history of like dropping end bombs and calling people faggots and their teammates are like, "Well, he really good at throwing a baseball. Maybe we shouldn't worry about what he does personally when on the field he's really good at what he does." Yeah, yeah. And um, like we talked about earlier, the, apparently it's it's not a new concept that people are willing to overlook a lot of awful shit if you're good at throwing a ball. <laughs> I this always blew my mind. Uh, this story is ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so in 1907, Cobb beat the shit out of a black guy who dared to walk through fresh asphalt near him. Uh, in another incident, uh, while he was playing, uh, someone was heckling him mercilessly. And this went on for most of the game. He did nothing the whole time, as he normally didn't. Uh, heckling is common in sports now. Apparently, it was much more active and violent back then. Um. Then the guy uh, called him, I'm not going to say the word, but he called him a half N-word, which uh, offended Cobb to the point that he stopped playing baseball, leapt over the the retaining wall, and began to assault the fan, uh, Merzel, like just punching the dog shit out of him, hand him like he was on top of the dude just raining blows on him. Uh, There's a good reason why he was winning that fight, however, because the man, a guy named Claude Loke, Locker, I might be pronouncing that wrong, had no fucking hands. So would you say that he would be unable to throw hands if the situation presented itself? I see what you did there. Ah. (laughs) Uh, So surrounding fans knew that Claude had no hands uh, and begged for Cobb to stop because once again, the man had no fucking hands. Like he's beating a handicapped person to death. Uh, Cobb replied, quote, I don't give a fuck if he has no feet. (laughs) I'm sorry. I I know this is horrible, but in a very um, slapstick kind of way, it's kind of funny. You can just imagine like uh, vaudeville music's playing in the background the whole time while he's just pounding this poor handicapped guy. The main thing that I wanted to get across was about how our, our excuses for people, but specifically in the military. And I want to relate it to something that the military still has to deal with. It's called uh, the Good Soldier Doctrine. Um, I don't know if, uh, Joe, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Oh, very much so. So just to give everybody a little little primer on it, I got a little bit of an excerpt here from an article from The Atlantic about John Kelly, and it talks about it just, just a little bit. So the Good Soldier defense is baked into the military justice system, and it's based on a breathtakingly shallow line of reasoning that just because someone is good at the job, he is incapable of committing a crime used to suggest that an accused has quote good military character the argument alone can be the basis for reasonable doubt or drop charges and when testimony supporting an accused soldier's character comes from a general or flag officer it can overwhelm all other other evidence of guilt so when you guys were talking about ty cobb and excusing his racism and it just it brought me right to that and it did change. They had those few exceptions they made in 2015 where I believe it rape, sexual assault, and a couple other, I want to say, sex-related crimes 
were removed from that so they can't be used anymore. However, domestic abuse is still something that, that can fall under the good soldier doctrine. A commander can literally tell someone that this guy is too good of a soldier. The fact that he beat his wife black and blue, that it doesn't, doesn't change anything. Um, I, I, it's really, really frustrating to me. I mean, if that's the way he takes care of his wife, I mean, what kind, what kind of leader is that? Like, what, what kind of wonderful treatment can those soldiers expect? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, so I had something like this happen in my unit and it was during my last deployment. It was um, a soldier who was considered one of, uh, it was a different platoon, uh, one of the other platoons, most high speed soldiers. Um, and he was accused uh, with, with some very good validity of the accusations, I should point out, um, that he groped a female soldier. Um, I'm not exactly sure of the details of the groping, but they don't matter. Um, he was accused of groping an, a fellow soldier within the platoon. Um, but again, he was considered an amazing soldier. Uh, I would call him a good soldier um, until that happens. Obviously, then he's just a piece of shit. Um, but their way of remedying that was sending him to my platoon. And uh, he was given to my squad and he was given to my team. And then I told my squad leader, um, I will absolutely not have him in my team and he should not be in the squad either. And I was almost demoted over it, but they ended up giving him to somebody else because they didn't have another fire team leader to take over if I got fired. Um, but the platoon as a whole was completely accepting of him because of that, uh, because he was a quote unquote good soldier. Everybody seemed to just wash their hands of the whole incident and he was never prosecuted. Um, the female soldier that he groped was never even moved out of the unit to be away from him. Um, yeah, it was completely poisonous. Um, it was probably, I mean, I was in all male units 99% of the time uh, of my time in the military. Um, uh, whatever happened, nobody ever came public with their accusations uh, against anybody. But um, so I was not used to this. Uh, like I, I was completely blind to the problem within the ranks of the military because being in an all male unit, you know, hypothetically, we're not supposed to have to worry about it, um, which obviously we all know is not true now. Um, but yeah, in, in that incident, Nobody cared. Uh, the only thing they did, um, I, and honestly, I think that the main reason they moved him was like to make sure she didn't go to the MPs or something. I, I, I don't know, but uh, we, he finished the better part of the rest of the deployment um, in our platoon completely free of any consequences. And when he got back, he got pinned sergeant. And he's still in. And who knows what the fuck he's doing now. That's the thing is that they, the, the, the level of trust given to leaders has a has a horrible steep curve to it, and you know lower leaders get more more responsibility and more responsibility, and that means assholes like this, in times where he needs to be doing his effing job, is off fucking around and actually hurting people, and he can continue doing it as long as his commander excuses it. Yeah, and I don't know how it's like anymore uh, within the ranks, but. Uh, I'm sure he can continue getting away with it. I, I know people keep telling me about reforms within the military. I just don't believe it. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, when people's careers 
aren't impacted by doing the right thing. Um, in this case, reporting sexual assault. I mean, if you're a commander or a first line supervisor and you report that your soldier raped somebody like that comes back on you. And that, that, that's not a situation that should exist in any way. Um, like how, how awful was I as a team leader when one of my, uh, Soldiers got a DUI. Now imagine if like he fucking beat his wife or actually I had the opposite thing happen where my soldier's wife beat him while I was in, which was interesting. Um, but I, you know, the, the thing is, is like, I still got thought of as a bad leader when that happened. Um, or, uh, a, a recent, um, episode that has, so on my podcast, I have somebody come on all the time named Rich and she is a staff sergeant in the United States Army right now. And, um, one of her soldiers popped on a drug test. Uh, the first thing that happened is what the fuck sergeant, how'd this happen? Like, cause he did drugs. Like that's, that's the end of the story. Uh, until we get rid of the idea that somebody's careers are impacted by reporting crimes. Um, it's not going to change. Uh, that was that was my job for two years at Fort Lewis. I was a drug investigator, um, so I you know we do at least one maybe two interviews a day of of guys with hot UAs. And the thing that I found was that one of the reasons we had so many was because we were at that time in '05 where recruiting standards had been lax slightly. Oh yeah. So and there were guys. I had three, four, five of them in two years. Tell me, I was an addict before I came in and my recruiter told me to say nothing and here I am. Um, and so, and it's just, it's just further, further fuel into the meat grinder, but you're absolutely right that it, until senior leaders know that by choosing to do nothing, they have signed their own death warrant, which is us essentially making leaders do what leaders are supposed to do, which tells me that we got to go back to the beginning. You know, it, it, it's, the, the entire structure of the army and of the military is just about accomplishing the mission. If we, 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 we think accomplishing of a, the mission is impossible if you have nothing to accomplish it with. Exactly. Exactly. And what, but that's what they tell us, right? Accomplish the mission, take care of your soldiers. Well, there are times where number two is way, way, way above number one, especially when you're stateside, but they don't do that. They make it seem cause they're all worried about their own promotions. It's that, that, that cascading effect of, you know, who was the person to report it, you know, and, and it is, it's kill the messenger. It is a bunch of dumbasses simply killing the messenger. Right. And uh, one of my favorite examples that, I mean, it's an extreme example, but there is a whistle when the, um, so I recently read a book called Black Hearts, um, and I did a podcast episode about the, uh, the Mamudia rape and murders. And um, mm-hmm. the, the main reason why it got reported, well, the only reason why it got reported and the truth came to light of who actually did it was a whistleblower who was a young private um, who was not involved in it at all. Somebody told him. Um, but before people started investigating it, uh, the first thing they want to do is fucking crush that private. Uh, there was a colonel that was telling people to find something to get him in trouble with to get him to shut up because he had to be lying. And a sergeant who did nothing and covered up for it. And I mean, thankfully, the private eventually got away and, um, you know, he never got in trouble. But there's a very good possibility he was going to be like facing prison time yeah. for, for telling people that their soldiers are raping and murdering people. Um, and there was several other officers who lost their job while trying to report it. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, I mean, we can, we can see it personally because we lived in it. It was, it's the, 
the damage, the almost irreversible damage at this point that two decades of constant war has done to the infrastructure of the United States military and to society as a whole. That's something that happens that you can't just, well, it's over. Everybody go back to being normal. Like it's not going to happen. The military either has to be completely dismantled and rebuilt under new ideas, new ethics and new morals, or we just shouldn't have one for a while. I know it's kind of stupid to say, cause it's America. We're always going to have this giant industrial complex of the military, but what we have now is completely unsustainable and is destroying itself. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Hey everyone. I really hope you're enjoying the podcast, but truth be told, I need your help. No, I don't need you to move a couch or borrow a leaf blower. No, I need you to hit pause on your podcasting app right now and share this episode with somebody you know, somebody who you might think might be receptive to it. It could be a, a friend or relative who's considering joining the military or a veteran you know who might be interested in, in hearing a little more truth in their news about uh, military and veterans. We rely on you all to help us reach as many people as possible. So please hit that pause button right now and share this episode with somebody. Sharing all done? Good? Okay, good deal. I know Uncle Al will cuss a lot listening to the episode, but he'll appreciate it when the cursing stops. Now I want to mention something about Patreon. We are always in the market for more Patreon supporters. So if you get the chance, please come out and support us. You can support us for as little as a dollar a month. And what do you get for your dollar, you ask? Well, you get a one-minute drop on any topic you choose once a month. Just email us your question or comment, and we'll give it the old Henry Danny breakdown on air. Guaranteed to have 60 seconds of our time. We may spend more on it. Um, we prefer to do military and veteran topics, but whatever topic you think might be pertinent. And we may spend a whole bunch more time talking about it, depending on the topic. And for contributors, a bit north of a dollar a month, we have some bonus episodes, some essays of mine, and a few other things as well. We're still in the process of, of building our rewards. So if you have any suggestions for Patreon rewards, please let me know. On a hill is expanding. We're going to start doing chapter series as part of our lineup. There are some topics that are simply too big and important to leave to discussing in a single headline. And with that in mind, I'd like to thank all of our honorary producers who are helping us do just that. We rely on the support of our patrons through Patreon to help keep the podcast a success. Thank you to Matthew Ho, Will RNs, Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James Higgins, and James Obar. Anyone who contributes $10 or more a month on Patreon will be listed here as an honorary producer. And to all of our contributors on Patreon, thank you for helping us do this. Now, back to the podcast. So just just to make sure that I, I stabbed it in here without uh, for for Danny, I uh, I've got his second question here, and it's also about Afghanistan. Um, what do you predict will occur in southern Afghanistan when and if the U.S. military finally leaves? Uh, effectively the same thing I see happening in the rest of Afghanistan. That's 
the state loses control of it. Um, then the South, they'll go back to the Taliban traditionally. Cause I mean, the Taliban's from Kandahar. Uh, I see the North kind of falling into the same as the rest of the country. I, I, I can see the state holding on to Kabul for quite a while. Um, also depending on, um, how much exactly we are willing to pull out. Like, well, we're still going to give air support, stuff like that, I think. Um, but the Afghan security apparatus will collapse entirely. Um, and then Kandahar will probably just go back to being how Kandahar always has been. Um, I mean, the Soviets found out what we found out and the British found out twice. Um, it's, it's going to go back to being uh, regional warlord type control. Absolutely. Except now they're going to be way better armed. Yes, yeah, they. Uh, we've 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 been slowly trickling arming them for eighteen years. They they better have some good shit. I I think so. I know it's like a pipe dream, but um, I think the best case scenario that happens is we get out and we allow the Afghan government to negotiate with the Taliban because the Taliban keeps saying we want to negotiate, but we will not negotiate as long as the Americans are here. Yeah. Um, because we could very easily, uh, very easily stay with our, with our hands still involved in the war while not having any soldiers on the ground. Like we, we'll, we're still totally going to give the Afghan army air support. That's never going to go away. Um, we're still going to have fucking CIA death squads on the ground like we do now in Northern Afghanistan. Um, but the only way I can see this happen, like ending with any semblance of like, Hey, look, there's the government we created is if we let the Taliban into it. It's not going to happen, but that's the, that's the only way I see it ending. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 all shit. It's all uh, and 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 the thing is, is that we've we've moved from such a we don't have diplomacy anymore. Our our State Department right now is completely defunct. So any kind of diplomatic anything, you know, the ideas that State Department people might have to make the situation better. They're completely overridden by, uh, we're going to send 4,000 more troops and that's going to make the difference. Um, right. And, and, I don't, and I don't know that that was much different for Obama or Bush than it is for Trump. You know, he has certainly take the reins off, but the, the horse has been there, you know, hacking away at things the whole time. Um, so I have, I got one more question for you and you, you pointed it out on your, uh, on your PragerU episode and you mentioned about should news get out of the opinion business you know the 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 hordes of of partisan hacks that they put on cnn trying to they don't ever come up with any kind of coherent thought or ever say the other side has a good point but i disagree with this it's just this mad rush for whatever we can get out of it you know the the, the partisans right. are more in and any kind of sober understanding or thinking is is completely gone yeah. Um, so I think as long as the news apparatuses continue to exist as they do today with, you know, CNN and MSNBC and Fox news and fuck, I don't even know how many 24 hour news channels there are anymore. Um, as long as those exist, um, America is, is for a lack of a better term fucked. Um, because they learned a long time ago that you don't pay your bills with factual news. Um, and you can't fill the news cycle for for 24 hours by saying this happened at this time um, or so-and-so said this, here's the video. You know, like um, you just can't fill the time slot. Uh, you know, you have your local news channels who used to do that, but now they're all owned by whoever that 
conglomerate's called? Sinclair. Um, Sinclair, yeah, that's right. And that Boris asshole saying whatever he is, and it's for like we had this because uh, I live um, about thirty minutes south of Seattle now, mm-hmm. and um, there's a local channel called Como News that's pretty popular, and then everybody figured out it was owned by Sinclair, and it's this big thing now um, because. Uh, on its surface, you know, people looked said on its surface, it's actually uh, giving news. And then you realize when you, when you talk about uh, actual news and then you sandwich, like if the actual news is the bread, but the meat of the sandwich is bullshit opinions. Like yeah. you, you pass the bullshit opinions off as if it's news or if it is based in fact at all. Um, and that's how you end up with Tucker Carlson effectively saying um, everybody but white people are bad and gross and dirty. Where they like, and then that's sandwiched in between actual news, uh, as far as close as Fox News can get to actual news. Um, and I think, uh, I think it was wasn't it Dan Rather who went on there and just told him to his face that you're bad for America. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, that he, was glorious. Or uh, uh, was it? I think it was Ted Koppel. Ted no, Koppel. Ted Koppel told that to Sean Hannity. Yeah, that was the one. It's still just as correct. Uh, oh God, it was. It was wonderful to watch Sean's face melt. Do you remember? Uh, I mean, I'm not the biggest John Stewart fan, but John Stewart went on his uh, on his show. Uh, I think that was Tucker Carlson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it was. That was. Yeah. And shit talked him so hard that Fox News actually canceled the show. Because they realize that there is no way that he's ever recovering from this, from their own fans. Um, and I think there's two ways we can go about this. And that is uh, somehow uh, through the magic of internet thinking, uh, get the, the fairness doctrine or, or some other kind of doctrine put back in place where the news is in the news business and not the opinion business and, and, and put a solid, solid wall up in between them. Um, that's not going to happen. Um, I mean, obviously, we're post-Trump now, uh, going towards the second term. I think he'll probably win because I have no faith in the United States of America anymore, um, and that's just not an option anymore. It, it's uh, the the mechanisms that were in place to make something like that happen are definitely be are going to be gone by 2024, um, assuming he doesn't get thrown out of office or keel over from a heart attack because he looks like a fucking garbage bag full of bisquick, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, the other option I think is just attacking them directly. And I know that's like the, a partisan thing to say, but I'm, I never called myself a tolerant leftist um, in my defense um, because, you know, I feel like it's like that give and take thing where you have to have respect for the other side to get, to get respect from the other side. Yeah. All of that pretense has been gone for years now. I mean, they call them telling people that they're the Antichrist or, you know, uh, what, what was something else I heard recently? Um, oh, to, you know, to get elected, you clearly have to be, ha- have a Ivy League education and you can't have grown up poor, otherwise you're lying. Um, you know, with Ocasio-Cortez is fucking living in everybody's mind rent free nowadays. Um, it's, it's so disingenuous that they know it. I mean, they, they know what they're saying is total and complete bullshit, but they know it doesn't matter. And I don't know how you fight that. It's, it's, it's hard. It's, uh, just, just out of curiosity, what are your thoughts on, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Um, well, uh, I like her. I'm, I'm a member of the DSA, so I'm contractually obligated to like her. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I am a member of the DSA, but, uh, I think, uh, you know, she has 
some obvious gaffes um, because she's what 29 years old and just got elected to a national yeah. office. Uh, so we can, and also the same people who are saying, well, she said this one stupid thing. So that clearly means that she is unfit for the office. And I find that fucking hilarious that, <laughs> they, that they have the balls to say that. Um, but, you know, I think I said today on Twitter that arguing with these people about calling them hypocrites is like honking in a traffic jam. It doesn't fucking matter. Um, I, I like the fact that someone who grew up uh, up or lower upper middle class, whatever she grew up as cleaning houses that pay the bills, pay, uh, uh, you know, tending bar after being a college graduate. I think she graduated with a degree in economics, which is something I kind of figured you'd get a job with. It was um, uh, inter- international relations, actually. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the, you know, she went to a decent school. She got a degree. Um, and she was tending bar to pay her bills and take care of her family. And I think that's something that we as um, middle-class Americans, uh, lower middle-class Americans can all respect. Um, and she upset the poster child of a corporate Dem who rode two elections for 10 fucking terms or whatever it was. Uh, and, she, and she beat him um, through nothing but hard work uh, and messaging. Um, and I think a lot of what she says is, is true. And I think, as she grows up and actually learns how to do her job because this, she doesn't know how quite yet um, she'll get better. Um, She's going to say dumb shit along the way. Like every other politician, we can't give her a pass for that. But like the interview with Anderson Cooper was, was a pretty good example of why candidates like her are coming to blows with the establishment, uh, whether it be the democratic establishment, which is more centrist or the right wing establishment, which is bug fucking same these days. Um, it's the fact that she's being interviewed, uh, by a man, um, Anderson Cooper, who has a direct is would be directly impacted if her, um, socialist ideas came into effect. Cause the dude makes $11 million a year. So, the idea that she can get a fair interview by a guy who doesn't want to pay his fair share of taxes, like, but she still is being put out there effectively. I honestly think that the democratic national committee would be happy if she made an ass of herself at this point. Um, but the fact that she can't get a fair interview because the people who are interviewing her have, have something to lose. If this, uh, you know, democratic socialist movement ever takes national power, they have a lot to lose because they haven't, they've been, exploiting people for years. Um, and they, and they know they are part of a media empire that's built on bullshit antagonism and corporate shilling. Anderson Cooper actually had a, uh, an internship at the CIA before, uh, before <laughs> yeah, exactly. And see, and that's the kind of thing that, that really terrifies me. They, uh, I have a headline we're going to do later this week talking about some of the new, uh, the new representatives we have and uh world socialist website did an article called the, uh, the CIA Democrats. I don't know if you read it. Oh, I haven't yet. Um, but it's, it's a really good article and it goes through all of the potential electees and their backgrounds. And so the, the one that I really wanted to point out was uh, that one was Abigail Spanberger and she's a, a, a never, never served in office before, but she has been an undercover CIA operative in Western Europe for 10 or 12 years. Oh, right. She's on the beat Dave Brett, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so how do, do I, as a citizen, how can I possibly fucking vet her experience to know where she might lean on something or whether or not she's fucking talking out of her ass? 
Right. I mean, how, how do you do that? And, and, the, and the other thing that really scares me is that it's free publicity for the CIA because she can say things, give kind of the wink and the nod, and it's cool, it's cool, I can keep the secrets. You know, it, 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 people need to know this shit. They need to know that Anderson Cooper did an internship at the CIA, which if, if it wasn't Anderson Cooper, if somebody told me that about Amy Goodman, I, I might not give it as much credence. But we know that, like you said, Anderson Cooper, all those, those shill CNN-type journalists, they'll just put it on the air. They don't care. They don't care if it's truthful. It's about, like you said, filling the hours. Yeah. And especially those CIA types. I mean, I, I think it was Evan McMullen tried to ride the centrist high horse the other day mm-hmm. um, about, you know, people who incite racial hatred uh, or the right wingers who incite racial hatred are just as bad as the leftists who want to raise taxes on the wealthy or something absurd like that. And, uh, you know, he was a, a CIA spook for years and years and years. And, you know, it, and then, um, Spanberger was a CIA operative for years and years and years. And, you know, we won't know exactly what they did in the CIA, whether they were doing, you know, the stereotypical CIA horrible death squad type shit in South America or the Middle East these days. Um, But you have to accept that to join the CIA, you have to think that stuff is okay because you're, you're, whether you be like a, a desk writing financial analysis or something like that for the CIA, you still work for the CIA. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't matter. Like the, <laughs> I don't care if you're the bookkeeper at Auschwitz, you still work there. Yep. And uh, you, you should be able to question their moral authority to run and keep an office because of who they worked for. It's, I mean, it's the same reason that you know, we laugh whenever uh, like the new def- defense or the uh, department of defense secretary used to work for Boeing. Like, and he's done literally nothing else. He's never been in the military or nothing. Uh, but yeah, he used to work for Boeing. So we're like, well, of course, um, the, the, the Pentagon and the White House would want a member of the military industrial complex now leading the DOD. And that's like, you know, that's why I, I butt heads with a lot of regular Democrats uh, because, I mean, I'm, I was a registered Democrat for quite some time just so I could vote in primaries. Um, Depending because the state that I lived in, you had to be a member of the party in order, or you had to be registered as a member of the party to vote in the primaries. Um, now I live in Washington, and I'm honestly not sure if that's the case up here. Um, but regardless, it's the fact that I I think you see um, people like Ocasio Cortez winning. Sarah Smith came very close to winning in Washington. Um, uh, Omar won in Michigan, um, but it's like they see that people are voting for the people that they want to actually represent them. And they are generally left leaning because most of the time Americans agree with left wing ideas, as long as you don't call them socialism, yep. um, which is stupid. But, and so the, the DNC goes out and throws its money behind people who used to be CIA operatives. Yeah. No, I think that I want to make some videos about all of the various social socialist uh, type systems that exist for the military, how the medical benefits work, how the commissary works. And ask people, you know, we, we, we talk so much about hating socialism, but our entire military is fueled by it. They're supported by these systems that are not capitalist, very, you know, they really don't fit into that whole, I'm going to take every fucking penny you have. Yeah. Um, so I, I, damn it, I lost a train of thought. 
anyways um but we have to we have to be willing to put to to take that time to argue with those those centrist dims as you're doing on twitter and make it clear about what is actually happening you know that that uh, to me these days government is a combination of a, a variety of different political systems we don't live in a solvent democracy we live in something a little more oligarchy rich assholes that kind of thing oh, but definitely. people talk about democracy so much and so when we, we have to start splitting hairs with people and letting them know that that version of democracy you believe in it fuels this bullshit yeah. understand that and and you want to call it socialism communism call it whatever fucking word makes you happy but it's it's the reality that we live in and people need to, to try to accept it absolutely and there's yeah it's it's kind of funny because you know i spent the vast majority of my life in the military with tricare and now i have tricare as a civilian and um as a veteran but you know i recently i had to go get my gallbladder removed like emergency surgery and I had sepsis and everything. Cause as a fucking idiot, I don't go to the doctor. Um, I let it go too far. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, like I, even though I've had full, mostly free healthcare for most of my adult life, I still treat myself like I was the 13 year old growing up to a single mother with no healthcare, mm-hmm. which was until you pass out dying, we're not going to the hospital cause we don't have insurance. Yeah. Um, like when, me and my me and my brother used to beat the shit out of each other and um you know go BMX riding and and cut our legs open and we weren't gonna go to the ER because that's too expensive. My mom would super glue us closed. Um but you know now I'm I was twenty seven and I had to get uh you know gallbladder surgery and I waited until the last second. Um I was in the hospital for three and a half, almost four days. Um I came out and I owed nothing. And, uh, you know, I go to school, um, finishing my, my graduate's degree and I pay nothing, um, because I pay taxes. And, um, I mean, the argument that most of my shitty boomer family members says, well, you earned it. So fucking everybody else, they pay taxes. They're a member of the, they're, they're a citizen of this country. Mm -hmm. They deserve the same benefits I get. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll never have to pay tens of thousands of dollars in de- uh, of student loans like my sister does. Uh, my sister graduated from Michigan State, I think, almost a decade ago. And she's still paying student loans. And it's just unfathomable. And it's like, uh, it, nobody ever asked how the fuck we'd ever pay for uh, like the Space Force or a fleet of uh, aircraft carriers the size of small cities. Um, but when you bring up healthcare or education or infrastructure or, you know, basic substance living allowance, uh, it, suddenly it's, we want to cut purse strings and shit. It's uniquely American. It, it really is. And, uh, I, 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 it really boils me about guys, uh, junior enlisted guys having to go use food stamps to pay for things. And I, th- I think that that's the, that should be the final nail in the coffin. When uh, America's treasured military has to use food stamps to pay for food, you really start to see who America cares about. Right. And it's not, it's not the soldiers by any means. I mean, nope. if, if America actually cared about the military, like they say they do, uh, especially the, the, super fascist right-wing military worshiping types they would have a functioning va healthcare system that doesn't fluctuate wildly depending on what region you go to or how close you live to a major city they wouldn't have you know like my 
BAH for my uh, school has been fucked up for half of a year now because it's computer glitch and nobody seems to be giving a shit about any of it. Um, stuff like that. And it's, it's about, it, I'll, I'll say their care for the military is exactly how much care they give to middle America. And that's just enough for the campaign stop. And then they leave. Yep. And that's, you know, that's, a, that's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. And it's enough to get those people from medical middle, middle America who grew up with no prospects or people from the rust belt where, um, you know, corruption and all those other things have, have caused our livelihoods to go away. Like when I was growing up, you didn't really have to worry about college. You just go work in the Ford plant. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what my dad did. That's what my dad's dad did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then once that's gone, uh, there's, there's no kind of program for, for anywhere to go, anyone to go anywhere. So you join the military, um, to get out. And I think that is, um, like this weird pipeline you're either going to join the military, go to, go to prison effectively from if you're poor. And I think that's one of the main hurdles when it comes to getting any kind of Medicare for all or, or taxpayer funded social education is that the carrot's gone for the military. Now the, you know, the, if you take that away, there's a very good chance. I don't join the army. I mm-hmm. deal with Detroit's bullshit as long as I don't, have to worry about how I'm going to afford to go to school. Except, I mean, I, I assume that in a situation where taxpayer funded education exists, I'm going to have to keep my grades up fine, whatever. But I probably wouldn't have volunteered to go fight in Afghanistan twice. No. <laughs> it's like socialism only exists in America. If you're willing to almost die for it, like no one should have to pick like, you know, I might major in a history if I don't fucking step on a bomb. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And that's, that's only acceptable in this country. Like if you ever post about it in Facebook, you know, Facebook's a fucking cesspool. I honestly argue that Facebook's worse than Twitter now. But, you know, if you post like, hey, how about affordable education? Though I, I personally, I think affordable is nothing but vapid dog whistling horseshit because affordable just means you can afford the 20 years of loan repayments. Yeah. 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 What does affordable really mean? Yeah. Affordable doesn't have a fucking debt. Affordable is a sliding scale. What affordable for me is not affordable for the person that lives next door, but they're going to, well, that book's $500. It's affordable to somebody. Nope. But you know, whenever you post about that on social media, they're like, well, why don't you join the military? Like, right. Because I want my son, if I ever have kids like to join the military, possibly almost die just so he can go get a degree that doesn't fucking work in our dead economy. Sweet. But that's totally acceptable. <laughs> uh, that's 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 just the fucked up truth of it. Um, hey, uh, BT, did you have any uh, specific questions you wanted to ask, brother? Uh, no, I just I did want to play off real quick. Is talking about you know the reception of these radical, I'll say radical, radical right wingers, and you know anybody who is still rocking the MAGA, which would completely well i i can't say uh he currently does but i can pretty well assume that that describes my father i mean if you go back right before i was medically retired uh you know i was uh, i was an e6 in alaska so between me and my wife and bah and you know cola and everything we were making just shy of ninety thousand dollars which sounds like a lot but it's alaska so i mean it's not it's not really that much. And it was a dual income, but I mean, that's where we were living. And then once I got medically retired, we went from $90,000 to $12,000. 
which is well below poverty. And I mean, this, I, we, it was a family of four. Uh, so, you know, I reconnected to my father who wasn't in my life, but, you know, we talked and he was like, Hey, you know, you can come work for me. Cause he had a, he had a, he had like a, a hotshot trucking business in Oregon. So I was like, cool. So, you know, now again, we went down to, uh, you know, $12,000, but we had, we had money. We, we, we weren't like living great, but we weren't living paycheck to paycheck. You know, like we had our fight, we had maxed out credit cards and shit, but we were still making it. We weren't, you know, going hungry, but, uh, you can't make any amount of debt work when you go from $90,000 a year to 12,000. There's no Dave Ramsey snowball. Nothing's going to fix that. So my father knew that I was completely dependent on him. So we dropped $40,000 on getting a, you know, I got this truck, I got a trailer, I got the chains, I got everything that I needed. And I mean, also, by the way, I'm injured. Like I'm being retired because my shoulders, uh, screwed up, but I'm doing all this for him. And, you know, he knows that I'm a vet and everything. Well, two weeks into my, uh, working for him, he's not paying me. I've already like completed runs and I've gotten uh, the checks back and they've cleared. And he's like, yeah, I'm just, I can't pay you because my family needs it more because, you know, he, uh, he lived in a house that his new wife had. So like it, it was, uh, it was a possession. So he, as this super right wing, I love the military, you know, he would wear the, if you stomp on my flag, I'll stomp your ass kind of t-shirt, even though he's an absolute coward. Um, <laughs> but I mean like, this is the guy who he is. But then still, as he watches me like sitting there at the table and like, he's watching me just, as my wife describes melting away as a human being as you know, I'm coming off of getting out. He's still, that isn't enough for him to not take that uh, as an opportunity to be a, uh, uh, a piranha. And I mean, that's what it comes to. A lot of these like super crazy people are like, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't consider myself to be a great person, but I just feel like you got to be just insanely fucked up to be able to, uh, and I mean, after that, we went, we went, we had to file bankruptcy. Like we lost everything. We sold everything. We bought this broken down RV that like, I'm seriously in the parking lot of Home Depot. We have the county people coming and telling us that, you know, they're going to tow away our tray, our, our trailer because it's been parked there for two days and I'm like trying to paint it and everything because it was a smoker's view. Like just, just the worst case scenario uh, for your life going. And still that's not enough for the, you know, I care about the soldiers and all that uh, kind of uh, like idle chatter, the, the stances that people take. But then when it comes down to actually looking at it, they don't follow through with the way they, uh, with the way they portray themselves. Yeah. I mean, I, a, a good example, uh, I don't have, that's a horrible story. Um, I thankfully my, well, my dad's been dead since I've been like eight, but my mom is uh, remarried to 
a guy who used to be a member of the SDS back uh, during like the, the Vietnam era protests. So thankfully she, mm. she's, she's getting woke real fast. But uh, uh, my, my sister has bought in full, full born to the MAGA horse shit. Like, fucking facebook's about white genocide and shit like that oh cool yeah and like the the disconnect uh between um like what these people preach and then like their actual lives is like jarring because she'll talk about like oh the only good socialist is a dead one i'm like hi (laughs) i am your brother you know me personally you know i'm not a bad person um but apparently you are (laughs) uh like it's, I'm not sure, like, I just don't know how much um, of it is, is, is real anymore, which is weird. Like we're like the uncanny valley of familial politics is strange. And I don't understand how in the fuck we ended up here. Oh uh, yeah. It all happened so fast <laughs> or maybe it's been this way for since since i've been a kid no, nobody had the balls to just act like a complete asshole all the time until now i think it's accelerated uh, yeah you're probably right i mean we went from i mean i wasn't the biggest obama fan on earth uh for obvious reasons um for various reasons but you know at least i could say you know like you know at least he isn't embarrassing no uh, not at all <laughs> he killed that fly like and that was that was a really good yeah he drone striked it um, <laughs> <laughs> which was surprising. Um, yeah, it, it, you know, it, his, his scandals of which there are a few, but like the ones that they blow up on you know, right wing media, it's like he wore a tan suit and um, uh, he promised, but at the same time they made him sound like he was the president that I wanted. Like <laughs> he, He's trying to give everybody healthcare and he's going to destroy the military. I'm like, fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like if every Democrat was as evil as Fox News thinks they would be, they they are, America would be so much better off. <laughs> no, it's 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 gone far beyond parody now, and and um, seeing the seeing the racists come out since Trump has been inaugurated and the the way that that has developed and formed. But the but the thing is, is that we are seeing where these pockets of nastiness are coming from. You know that the the four chan assholes aren't able to hide nearly as easily as they used to, especially since they didn't have anyone to be at the front of their, at the front of their, their March. Um, but now they do, they have this bumbling skunk haired asshole who is as racist as they are, but he just talks through dog whistles, but here we come. Hey, great. The guy's there. Let's go out and deal and hurt some black people. Yeah. And yeah, the other people that he brings along with them, like, Sebastian Gorka, who's a member of like a fucking Hungarian Nazi group, <laughs> and uh, was Steve Miller, who I I don't even know how how to describe him other than like if uh, Anne Rand book got bitten by radioactive Nazis. You know that's that's probably a pretty good description of him. He he seems like someone that is supremely unhappy, and so that's unhappiness has to be pointed at something, and so. That's what it was. And, and I'm really curious what his next job is going to be. I'd like to know about that. And granted, in today's America, he'll probably have a more prestigious job than his racist ass deserves. But it, it will be interesting to see where we turn next. Uh, probably working for the Cato Institute or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got to have some kind of Nazi party front that he can, he can go and be the receptionist at or something. 
Um, he could always go work for the Libertarian Party. Uh, <laughs> yeah, them too. <laughs> <laughs> switch out your swastikas for bad jokes about roads, and you're good to go. Yeah. I, 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 you know, we, we, uh, uh, there are a few libertarians have some really good ideas on, on anti-war stuff, but most of the time it's, it's, it's breathtaking. It's, it's a little, wow, you're a real person. You're not a cartoon. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, 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 it's breathtaking. I, I, th- I feel like the libertarian party is like the political party of Prager U, like in the <laughs> same, in the same way that like every once in a while you see something like out of the corner of your eye, like that's kind of cool. And then you, <laughs> then you actually turn to look at it like, whoa, never mind. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It, it it seemed okay, and we got a full view. And no, oh. hey, what's this about legalizing drugs and ending the, ending all these wars? Oh, you want to be able to legally own people as slaves again? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, never mind. Yeah, it's a it's a quick fall down uh, the Stefan Molyneux hole. You're just like, where the hell? What the hell happened? Yep. I fell down it. I, I'm I'm embarrassed, but you know, I'm I'm big enough to say I fell into that for a while. Uh, oh, I I can totally admit that. Um, so before I kind of became a socialist, I knew I wasn't a Republican or a Democrat. And I saw what everybody else sees about the Libertarian Party. And it was like, and the war on drugs is like, cool. And they're like, let's pull out of Afghanistan and Iraq. I'm like, fuck yeah. And uh, and I totally bought into it. Like, I, I think if somebody digs far enough back into my Facebook timeline, I was totally sharing stuff from like the Libertarian Party and like the skeptical, skeptical Libertarian Facebook page and shit like that. <laughs> and then like, I actually talked to other Libertarians. It's like, oh, fuck, <laughs> you guys are nuts. And because uh, that's when I realized like, it's more than that. It's they don't want a government unless it's to exploit you. It's a, it's all of the bad parts of capitalism. It's the only parts they want left. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 hard to look Rand Paul in the eye even when it's a picture. He's a, <laughs> he does. I mean, every once in a while he does do something good for the anti-war side, but most of the time, man, he shills really hard. Um, but but at, at the very least, we do understand that that sliver of libertarians could be helpful. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It depends because, like, uh, from my home state of Michigan, they have Justin Amash who does. He kind of does really good for what he is, because like he never really has to do anything to actually show his true libertarian beliefs. It, he just votes against drug legislation and um, private prisons and stuff. So everyone's like, "Oh yeah, he's great. You should love him." Like, yep. dude, look further, because yep. uh, if he ever gets the chance to do what he wants. I will probably be living in somebody's garage. Yeah, that's 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 more than a little terrifying. Yeah, and when, when you start seeing them really talk about what they believe in, you really start to understand why he got his ass kicked by his neighbor. <laughs> it's I forgot about that. <laughs> he got his fucking <laughs> ribs broke. <laughs> I I I really wonder because. You think that these guys are putting on um, a a mask for the public to like, man, they're this gross because they're pandering to their base. But then like somebody rolls on him who lives next door to him. You have to like, oh no, he's probably just a huge piece of shit. <laughs> well, Joe, um, thank you so much for coming and, and chatting with us today. Um, will you let everybody know um, what you have coming up and uh, where they can find your work? Yeah, uh, so my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, is available uh, online wherever you get your books. Unless you're in England, apparently, they don't ship there, and I don't really understand why. So, That's weird. Yeah, the, the, um, Barnes & Noble will ship to Palestine, but they will not ship to England. 
That makes sense. <laughs> Which I mean, I guess, I guess I can kind of support that, but at the same time, it sucks if you're British. Um, also, you can find my podcast, uh, The Lines Led by Donkeys podcast, where we talk about history, military history, and laugh at idiots throughout and all the blunders and mishaps and everything. Um, I have my first sci-fi book coming out in May called Citizens of Earth, and you can pre-order it on kinitepublishing.com. And if you didn't get enough of me vulgarly bashing politicians on this podcast, you can follow me on Twitter at jcast99. All right, man. Well, thank you. Thank you again for for coming and chatting with us. I hope that uh, you'll come back again. Um, Yeah, anytime, man. Certainly when Danny's here, so he can chat you up a bit too. And uh, we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Take it easy, buddy. Yeah, you too. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also on Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at FortressOnAHill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Patreon, Spotify, you name it. Almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a contributor at Patreon.com. If you're not into doing a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link for that is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget that. We'll see you next time.